0: This is an episode that so many of you have been waiting for, and it's freaking long because there is so much information, I swear we could do an entire podcast season of just speech language pathology. I'm sitting down in this episode with my good friend Alexandra, she is a speech language pathologist, and she's giving us a ton of information. Alexandra gives some great resources in this episode so to find those you can go into the episode notes and I'll have those listed there. Also please read the disclaimer that is in the episode notes um, just pointing out that she's not your child's therapist and this is just general information and to obviously seek out treatment if that's something you think your child may need. So, without further ado, I give you the speech-language pathology episode. Okay, here we go. So, thanks for coming on my, I like to call it a show and not a podcast. <laughs> I guess the first thing that we will talk about is the role of a speech-language pathologist. So, what kinds of things are you guys doing? And something that I was actually thinking about, because I was recording A solo podcast episode the other day and within two minutes of me talking how I'm talking now like a radio voice my voice starts to hurt and I was telling my friend Kathy about that and she was like oh you should ask your speech language pathologist she can help you I was like that is such a good idea so I know that you do a lot of work with kids but do SLPs focus on different areas?
1: Essentially our scope of practice is obviously assessing and treating adults, teens, children with issues pertaining to the following. And it's a very long list. So we're, it's a very, very long list. So from the bottom to the top, we're essentially looking at play skills, social skills, what we call receptive language, which is essentially comprehension. Then we're looking at what we call expressive language, which is essentially like vocabulary and sentence making and grammar. Then we're looking at speech articulation. We can look at phonology. We can look at literacy. (laughs) Then we can look at oral motor. Um, And then we look at what we call voice, resonance, fluency, which is like stuttering. And we have a question about that that I hope we can get to later. And things like aphasia and dysarthria and stuff like that. We often tend to see more in the adult population after strokes or brain injuries. So it's a huge range. And then the last one that is often forgotten is swallowing.
0: Right. Okay, so maybe we can talk a little bit about milestones. So if I just had a baby, when should I first start looking at signs of expressing things? Or what's the first thing that parents should look at? Or like, what are what are the first things that you would notice in a developing baby or child?
1: Yeah, so, you know, the first things that we look at are when a child is literally a few months old. Um, There's a lot of communication that happens, a lot of nonverbal communication that happens. And those are really, you know, the foundation for anything that's coming later on. So those are super, super important. We're talking about things like eye contact and taking turns initiating, like things like pointing or you know joint attention, being able to share enjoyment with another person by looking and showing, giving an object, those kinds of things, those are super, super, super important. So once those are in place, and again that happens, all of these things, you know, they happen, you know, five months and six months and eight months and that kind of stuff. So we're talking really, really early on. Then you know, again, before the one year mark, babies start to make sounds. So the first sounds that you're going to hear are going to be like ooing and eyeing and those kinds of things, you know, making strawberries, making their lips make some kind of sound, making the tongue, you know, make sounds as well. So those are all super, super important. Then we get into babbling. So again, there's lots of different types of babbling. But typically, when we look at babbling, we're looking at some type of combination of a consonant and a syllable. So like, You know, a very common one, ma, 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 and then it's ba, 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 and then it sounds like they're talking their own language, but it's all babble. So that, again, is supposed to happen before 12 months. Typically, the more vocal a child will be or a baby will be, the more likely they are to be on the right track. The more quiet they are could be a red flag, potentially. When we hit the 12-month mark, and oftentimes this is like the shocking one for parents, um, we like to see, a, you know, about three to five words at the 12 month mark. So that can include mama, dada, and maybe they go woof, or maybe they go uh-oh, or maybe they say more.
0: When you and I first spoke, I was surprised that things like animal sounds, um, saying "Uh uh-oh, all those small things, I wouldn't have necessarily counted those as words if I hadn't spoken to you, right? So I think that's one thing to point out, like animal sounds, saying "Uh uh-oh, those count as words. Yes, they do.
1: So then things start to slow down a little bit between the 12 month and the 18 month mark, they still progress. But you know, you're looking at a six month period of time, where, you know, language is developing, but it's not at a huge rate. Um, So basically, by the time kids reach their 18-month age, we like to see, you know, 20 to 25, again, spontaneous words. And I'm just going to quickly describe what I mean when I say spontaneous words. And this is really, really important because oftentimes we'll see kids, especially at 18 months, that the parents will say, you know, they say, thank you, say, thank you, thank you. And they're going like this. And then finally, you know, after like three, four models, the kid goes, thank you, that is not a spontaneous word. When we are looking at a word count, we want a a word that a child will say regularly. It's not like a one-hit wonder that he said one time and never said again. It's a word that he or she is using consistently, regularly, and on their own, without any help, without prompting, without encouragement, nothing.
0: For these milestones, even the early ones that you spoke about, the babbling, the eye contact expressions, things like that. Are you familiar with whether physicians are asking about that? Because how, like, I I know I have a 21 month old, but I don't remember if they go through that stuff.
1: For sure. So they do. um, And they are indeed supposed to. It's super important. Um, Daycare providers also have access to Um, some of these screening tools that are available in the community. So a really common one um, here in Ontario is the Nipissing tool. And that is often the one that is used by physicians, by family doctors that will say, you know, does your child understand one step directions? Does your child play with, you know, three piece puzzles? Does he walk independently? That kind of stuff. And on their uh, visits, you know, for like shots and whatever, they are supposed to be going through those questions with you. But again, you know, sometimes I do notice that there is some discrepancy because we, we do often get, a, you know, a referral from a daycare, for example, who says like this kid says no words. And then the screening tool from the doctor checks that, yes, he says the 20, 25 words, and then when we're going through with families and we start the assessment, they're saying those words in imitation. They're not using them spontaneously, right? So there are certain things that, you know, will show a bit differently just because of how the tool is administered and explained, and of course, I mean, no one's asking family doctors to do the job of speech-language pathologists. It's a screening tool.
0: The little spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie, mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs. They have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it, and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge... Huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. it may also be something that is just done quickly at the appointment. And sometimes you're just kind of saying like, yeah, yeah, no, he's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Like, you're like nervous, they have to get a vaccine now. And you know, it's not something that's really they don't take the time to actually talk about it.
1: Absolutely. And you know, it's funny, sometimes I've also seen the opposite, where, you know, kids are actually doing great. But they walk into the doctor's office and they literally will not walk will not talk will not make a sound because they're terrified and they're asking the doctor or the doctor's asking the mom or the dad you know can he do this can he do that and mom's yes 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 and then the the doctor sees nothing and they're like nope 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 and refers we do an assessment and they're great so I mean it's it's imperfect of course but Um, I had a professor in university tell me, you know, with a screening tool, you kind of have to think about it as a fishing net. And if you make that fishing net too tight, so if your screening tool is too precise, then you're catching too many. And if you make it too loose, then too many are going through. So it's about finding that fine balance when we develop these tools and when, you know, providers like family doctors use them to make sure that we are catching the ones who really need. And maybe, you know, we might have some in there that were okay. And maybe we missed a few, but for the most part, we're pretty on point.
0: Right. And then things like this help for parents to be able to recognize these things on on their own as well. Like for me, I was unaware. I don't have other kids around me to be able to compare Milo's vocabulary or whatever. And I never thought to look it up to see what the milestones were. And I remember my mother-in-law said something about the number of words that he was saying, and oh, you got to get him to speak, you got to get him to say words. And I was like, Oh, what the heck? So then I, (laughs) I contacted you and yeah, he was behind. It's not something that I knew anything about really. And
1: and I mean, I hear that all the time. If you don't have a lot of, you know, kids, the similar age around you and you haven't had that exposure necessarily throughout your life, you know, you don't have any nieces or nephews and you're, you know, you send your child to daycare, but you don't have that many play dates, that kind of stuff. It's hard to, it's hard to know. Yeah. So for sure, education is super, super important. And I think you're actually doing such a great job of making a platform for this. So thank you.
0: Thanks. So what does 24 months look like, or what should it look like?
1: So between 18 to 24 months, there's a huge natural boost that happens where you know your child goes from saying 20 25 words to all of a say all of a sudden saying over a hundred words even more so even like 250 to 500 words and using word combinations so you know combining two words together at least in a span of six months one of the biggest kickers for that is imitation so typically around 18 months parents will start to notice that your child is copying you they're copying your motions, they're copying your gestures, they're copying your facial expressions, they're copying sometimes your sounds and your words. And the more that imitation is present, the more um, kids will, will imitate words and pick them up. So every day you're gonna start to hear new words just because they've heard them in their environment. We really like to encourage parents if your child is already falling behind at 18 months, send them in for, a, for an assessment. The worst that's gonna happen is that they need help and we're able to do so and get them caught up as quickly as possible, right? Or you come in and by the time you come in, they're totally normal and we discharge you. So, you know, best case scenario versus worst case, because what we often see, unfortunately, particularly in the public system where there's a long wait list is, you know, parents will say, I wasn't really worried or my doctor kind of said, wait and see. And, wait lists happen and by the time the referral is done the kid is two and a half three years old and now we're not talking about you know being behind a couple hundred words where you know the gap is looking like peers are using sentences and your child is maybe using single words so that you know gap really starts to show between two and three more so than it does when they're little
0: right And that, to be fair, that was me. I was like, okay, so he's behind a few words or... Because in my situation, because of COVID, his 18-month vaccine appointment got pushed. So I never went through uh, that stuff with them at the doctor's office, the words and all that. So luckily, we had the conversation and just changing some of the things that I was doing, his vocabulary has skyrocketed. But also speaking to you made me realize that it's not just, oh, okay, he's not saying as many words as someone else. It snowballs into things like him not having confidence or not being able to communicate at daycare when all his friends are communicating. And that part shocked me because I wasn't thinking about the consequences of what would happen to him, you know, down the road if it continued.
1: Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's something that I do like to talk about with parents, not necessarily to scare them. I mean, the last thing we want to do is, you know, create more stress and fear in parents. There's Already enough to worry about. But I think it's important for parents to know you know, what is involved and what the implications are. Research has shown over and over again that speech and language delays can have an impact on a child's, you know, self-confidence. It can definitely have an impact on just levels of frustration overall, particularly between 18 and 24 months. I mean, a child with normal language development will get frustrated between 18 and 24 months because they know what they want, but they don't have enough words. So if you add that language delay on top of that, it's that much more frustrating, right? So oftentimes by the time we see kids, oftentimes we'll hear parents say, they just scream. They want something, they scream. They don't want something, they scream. You know, I say, no, they scream because they can't communicate, right? They know what they want. They just don't have those words. So definitely levels of frustration, increase of, you know, possible behaviors, self-esteem can impact social skills. Again, like you said, with playing with your peers, it's hard to keep up and potential literacy issues down the road as well have been, have been shown.
0: I remember when I was speaking to you and you were asking me questions about Milo and giving me just kind of different techniques in how to play with him and how to speak with him it kind of reminded me of because we have two dogs it made me think of dog trainers the dog trainer is not training your dog they're training you how to teach your dog and that's kind of that's the vibe for milo's age anyways for things that that you told me to change to get him saying more words and it was the smallest change and it was unbelievable how he just started to to say words. And the biggest mistake that I was making and my husband was that we were asking him questions constantly or trying to get him to say words by saying, what is this? What is the cow? Say? Show mom the cow. Where's this? What's this? Constantly say this, say this. And you said that's a common thing that parents do because it makes sense. You're trying to get your kid to say words, right? Absolutely. So you told me not ask questions and just kind of pretend you're commentating on the environment, what's going on and just pointing things out to him and waiting. I was wondering if you could talk about those techniques because it's such an easy change and it made such a big difference.
1: Yeah. And I think it's super important. So one thing that's irking me that you said is that you called it a mistake. That wasn't a mistake. Yeah, I know. Sorry. (laughs) I shouldn't have said that. That was not a mistake because you know, a lot of parents and I remember talking about this with you during our appointment was you're going to get off the phone and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, this is great. And then you're going to have a minute where you're going to be like, oh, my God, this is my fault. Yeah. Okay. We don't want to go there.
0: You kept telling me during our conversation, it's okay if you want to cry now. <laughs> Are you going to cry? And I was like, stop it.
1: No. Um, you know, it's normal. Parents get emotional about this stuff. Of course they do. It's your kid, right? You want the best for them. Definitely not a mistake right? As a parent, you're doing what's natural to you. And of course, you're going to, you're going to amp up what you're doing already when you're feeling like my kid is not responding to what I'm doing. So I must have to do it more. The reason why I say it's not a mistake. And I think before I go into strategies, I think it's really important to like drive this in the way that I did with you is that kids who do not have any speech and language needs. So we're talking about kids whose language is.
0: (laughs) I'm shaking my head right now because yeah. This, yeah, this is very important,
1: <laughs> super important kids who do not have speech and language needs do not necessarily need to change anything because they will pick up the language in their day to day environment. Now, sometimes I get parents who are like, well, I don't really talk to my child. Okay. But do you say like, here's your plate, eat your food. Let's go change your diaper. And 99% of the time parents are like, yep. I'm like, then you talk to your child. Okay, we're not talking here about like sitting down with your child for hours on end at a day and, you know, reading them a lecture. We're talking about day to day activities, eating, bath time, sleep time, get in the car. Those words and those sentences are really getting driven into those those brains that are absorbing everything. And again, if their language is developing normally, they will just start to pick up those words and shoot them right back to you. Okay, so super, super important. That doesn't mean that you can't use these strategies that we're going to talk about. It's not going to harm. It's not going to harm them, but they don't need it, right? So when kids, though, are showing signs that maybe, you know, language development is a little bit slower than what we would like, that's when we start, you know, coaching parents and empowering them in making small changes that can have really, really big impacts. Um, And that's super, super important. Our sort of baseline strategies, and I mean, you hear this, I'm going to go ahead and say pretty much any speech pathologist that you go to who works with early childhood language development is reduce asking questions. And instead of asking questions, making those comments. So again, like you said, Renee, Instead of saying things like, what's that? And what does the cow say? And where does the car go? Um, your child is not going to respond to them. What do you want them to say? They're going to say, yep, yeah. nope. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And they're going to feel a lot of pressure. It's already hard for them. And now you're quizzing them. So <laughs> they're just going to shut down. Reducing the questions. And then basically, I like to make the analogy of when you're watching you know, a hockey game, and you're basically kind of like a sports commentator where you're describing what's happening in the environment. So for example, let me think of a toy. What, what's a toy that Milo loves?
0: Buzz and Woody and they're in their little, um, like a minivan.
1: Oh, in the minivan. Okay. So then instead of saying like, what's this? You could say, come on, Buzz in the van come on let's go in and then once they're all in you would go close the door one two three go beep beep here we go yeah
0: that was great you like that
1: (laughs) i'm just trying to think of what you know little people he might have i'm like oh my god she's so good (laughs) making this up as I go. But those are the kinds of, you know, comments that you could do just to in the same activity. It's not taking you more time. It's not, you know, you sitting down an extra amount of time. You're already there. So instead of saying, what's this? Where's Buzz going? Instead of saying that, you just say in the van so he can copy it if that's accessible to them. Um, But if not, they're really getting that input and eventually it will become accessible to them. So that's super, super important. I think this is something that you and I had, you know, talked about too, is how that one change will really affect your overall interaction, that back and forth communication where all of a sudden he's so interested in looking at you and, um, and playing with you and engaging with you because all of a sudden all the pressure is gone.
0: Which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair's too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MomRoom at www. slash momroom and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Yeah, I think another thing that really helped with Milo was the waiting to let him, yeah, kind of respond. You know, waiting five seconds, whatever it is. So
1: the waiting again is super, super important. I think as parents sometimes, you know, we feel like things should happen really quickly. You sometimes think that because you just said like one, two, three, go, or you know, red car, that you know your child should be imitating right away. But um, sometimes they need a little bit of waiting. So what I often tell parents is, you know, you give the model one or two, two, three times, and then you wait and you count in your head, five, four, three, two, one. Did the child say anything? If they didn't go ahead and give that model again, and then wait again. If they don't say anything, that's okay. You give them the model. They're taking it all in if they try to say something. So, I don't know, let's say you're doing one, two, three, go with a car ramp, for example. Your child might just go, go. Or maybe, oh. Or maybe they'll just look at you and they'll make a gesture with their hand. That's a great start at imitating, right? So you can't necessarily expect that it's going to come out perfect the same go around.
0: And another thing that I started doing with Milo that you recommended, which again, is such a small and simple thing to do was the, so what I've been doing is when it's snack time, giving him the two choices and, you know, holding a yogurt, holding the banana and saying yogurt or banana and waiting, whereas before I would just hear, eat your banana, like, (laughs) but to give him the choice. And then he has to kind of say which he wants.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, these are, you know, the things that are such small changes. Like you said, it's something you're doing already. The last thing that I want to do as a professional is to add on a parent's plate. Parents, their plates are already full. Okay. We hear you. We know you don't need homework. You need to have functional strategies that you can use in your everyday life that are not going to take more time. They might take a little bit more brain power in the beginning because you need to consciously make that choice to use them, of course, but it really becomes second nature. So I think the food one was a great one. And giving choices, you can do that with anything. You know, we talked about, you know, when you're doing a puzzle, be the keeper of the pieces, take them all out, mommy keeps them, and then you give them a choice. Cow or pig? fish or whale and then they make an attempt they might even point to it they might gesture towards it then at least you're communicating if you don't you know do anything then you're not even gonna have that interaction like you said eat your banana and he may or may not even have looked at you <laughs> right so <laughs> okay I'll eat my banana so giving choices is great and again we pair giving choices with waiting right so give a choice and I'll, I'll give your example again like yogurt or a banana and initially they might, you know, reach for one. So let's say um, Milo reaches for the banana. You can put the yogurt away and then at that point you're only holding the banana. But let's say he just reached for it and you feel like, hey, I think he can probably make at least a sound. So then you could say banana and then you wait. Five, four, three, two, one. Did he try to say something? If he didn't, you can do it one more time. If he said something like, Nana, which is often, you know, the first attempt for banana, or if he just goes ba, you say, "Oh, banana!" and then you give them the banana. Right? They made that communication attempt. But I think one of the biggest things, and I think it's something that you and I talked about with giving choices, is parents are often afraid of holding things back. Now, we're not holding things back to deprive a child. <laughs> that is never the goal, and the goal is not also to have a tantrum. Like that is not what we want. However. Oftentimes, when we start doing this waiting game, whether it's with giving choices or withholding things a little bit to encourage that communication, kids sometimes will get a little bit fussy because they're like, what the heck is going on? Like, I used to just get my banana, and now <laughs> I'm not getting it, right? So Sometimes some kids will be a little bit fussy. You might hear a scream. You might hear some grunting, but those are okay. And I always tell parents, you know your child best. If you feel like they're about to be on the verge of a tantrum, Give them the banana. You will have another opportunity at your next snack time, right? It's not worth a tantrum. Communication has to be fun and encouraging and motivating for kids.
0: Yeah. And I find for Milo anyways, giving him the choices like that, and I don't, it's probably my tone of voice and I'm almost making it fun, you know, like yogurt or banana. And he looks at me with these big eyes like, oh, oh. like it's a game and he's excited to be able to pick one. Love that one. And also the tip of I... Always read books to Milo with him on my lap, and I'm looking over his shoulder and changing that so that I'm facing him reading the book so he can see me, my face, my expressions was awesome. Also, just little, totally, yeah,
1: yeah. So, I think that's a you know, again, foundations of language and communication and social interaction is that face to face, that eye contact, that engagement super, super important. And you know, I don't want to dive like too into this, but when a child does not have those skills, those tend to be red flags for us in terms of possible social communication issues, possible, you know, autism, those kinds of things. Super, super important skills to have you know, keeping eye contact, taking turns in conversation, that kind of stuff. And so those skills have to be there, you know, from the get go with kids. And, and they're super important to implement as, as an adult playing with your child as well. So that face to face, super, super important. The other thing too, is that your face is the carrier of many things. It's carrier of facial expressions. It's a carrier of what your lips and teeth and tongue Um, and cheeks are doing while we're talking. And those are all really important cues for your child to develop, you know, social skills and language skills. So um, what we did talk about, and there's something that I don't like to take away when we're talking about reading books. So with Milo particularly, he enjoys books. He's a child who likes books. So you read books often as an activity during the day, not solely before bedtime. I don't like to tell a parent, you know, if they're, if reading only happens at bedtime and it's your cuddle time, it is not the time to be actively necessarily working on speech and language. Okay. Other SLPs may disagree on this point with me, you know, some SLPs may feel like use every opportunity, but I just feel like if that is your bonding, cuddling time, keep that. If your child is like Milo and enjoys looking at books and it is an activity that is done regularly and often throughout the day, then you want to make that, those opportunities, learning opportunities where you really want to focus on being face-to-face and being level. So I'll use your example, Renee. People may not know this. You are freaking tall.
0: <laughs> you this is true. tower
1: over me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's funny because sometimes people message me on Instagram and they're like, How tall are you? Because so they'll tall. see a picture of me with someone else. I'm 5'11. So tall.
1: People do not know this, but we went in we went to a show and this, you know, conference room or whatever was Packed like you cannot see where you are going, and I'm looking up at
0: Renee, and she's like, "Oh yeah, we can just go there. (laughs) You can see above the crowd." (laughs) I'm like, "The bathrooms are over here. We can get a drink (laughs) over here." Yep. yep, that was exactly
1: it. So being level with your child, particularly if you're very tall, um, sitting down next to your child, you are still not level with them, okay? They're looking at your chest or your belly, depending on how tall you are. So you want to keep in mind, either you lower even more or you lift the child up.
0: Yeah. Good. Was there any other technique, like these little things that people can change that you can think of?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, these are really the foundation and they're super, super important. When, you know, your child is at the level where, you know, they are imitating now and they are using more single words and sounds, we're looking, you know, 24 months, kids start to combine words. Super, super important because combining words, leads to using sentences, right? And we want sentences around the three-year mark. We want to expand on what a child is saying. I'll give you an example. Let's say your child comes up to you and says, banana, right? Or they say, more. But you know that what they want more of is banana. Then you would match what they're saying, but add on. So you could say, more banana, right? So they gave you one word. You're giving them two words back. I'm trying to think of another another
0: example. Do you have an example with Milo that we could add on to? Um, it's really cute. He has one of the little people he has is a cow, and in the barn, the cow goes to sleep with his blanket on him. So if I say go get your cow, he wants to go to sleep and put on his blanket. He'll go and do that.
1: Okay. What would Milo say?
0: He right now he does a motion for sleep, like he puts his hand to his face on, and tilts his head. Okay. So he would probably say like moo sleep. Perfect. So, or he would do,
1: sorry, he would do moo and then gesture sleep, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, perfect. That's a really great example. So you could model back the actual words. Cow is sleeping. You're right. Cow is sleeping. The cow is sleeping. Okay, super important. That becomes his next target, right? We're modeling to him where we want him to be.
0: Two things that I just thought about that are super important and that I thought was interesting was when I kind of figured that Milo was behind in the number of words he was saying, I remember thinking to myself, well, he understands though. He understands what I'm saying because I can tell him to sit down or stand up or lay down, something like that. Go get your blanket and he'll do it. So in my mind, I was like, well, he's not saying as many words, but he understands. So it's fine. But after talking to you, because I can see why people would think that, right? Like he's understanding language. He's just not saying the words.
1: Mm-hmm. You're bringing up such a great point. And you know, we're not covering... <sighs> Half of it today. Right. Otherwise we would be here till tomorrow. Right. We, we would. So, you know, if you podcast series, here we go. Um, But, but, um, we've definitely focused our conversation today on the most common that we're getting is my talk. My, my kids just not talking. Right, or they're not talking enough. So, very like early language development. Um, but I will use this as an opportunity to say, as much as we've talked about how you know those social and play skills are super important as a foundation um for language to develop, comprehension is also super duper important. So if a child is not understanding, which obviously is not the case of Milo, but if they're not understanding properly, or they have really poor association between uh, a word and an object or a word and a picture, we can't expect them to say it, right? And I kind of always give the example, like if um, if you say, go get your cow or, you know, where's the cow and your child is looking at, you know, the farm animals and hands you the pig, right? They haven't even associated the cow and that object go together how do you want them to say cal?
0: The comprehension and the actual verbalizing words are like two separate things, but they kind of have to go hand in hand.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. You need that comprehension to get that expressive language. So again, if we're referring back to what we talked about at the very beginning, um, when we talked about receptive language, so that's what we were talking about when we we're talking about comprehension. And you know, we're looking at things like not just can you go get your shoes, but we're looking at things like, you know, is your child able to point to pictures in a book, for example, you know, without help, where's the farmer where's the police car and they can go, right, if they can't do that, we're gonna have to work on that so that they can strengthen those associations I mean what words are and what a concept is in their brain to uh, you know, down the line, expect them to use those words. But if that concept isn't there, I mean, no one, you know, can talk about something that they don't understand. Neither can kids. That being said, in a normally developing child, super, super common, and it is expected, kids understand far more than they are able to express. And that's, you know, the case with Milo is that he's understanding way more. He's concept of words and objects and pictures all there um, and just not coming out. Right.
0: Okay. So another thing that I was thinking initially when I thought he was low on his vocabulary was I didn't want to overwhelm him. So I knew he wasn't saying, just for example, he has certain toys that he plays with all the time. So he wasn't saying cow, he wasn't saying pig, he wasn't saying whatever, bottle, let's say. So I felt like I didn't want to expose him to all these other words when he wasn't even saying the few words like cow or bottle that we play with all the time. And then after speaking to you, I realized now there's no such thing as overwhelming them. Like you should just be exposing them to all the words and not, you know, hold back on, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say mango, eat your mango and, and do the whole spiel because I didn't want to overwhelm him. So that's kind of something that I thought, but that's not actually the case.
1: Yeah. You're bringing up such great points. Um, these are quite- questions that parents ask all the time, right? And again, keeping in mind with that perspective that most parents who come into our offices think they did something wrong or they're doing something wrong. So again, you're not doing anything wrong by doing that. You're doing something that seems like the obvious answer, right? <laughs> like It just seems obvious and natural. And so you're like, well, I won't do that. Um, we, you know, we hear the same thing with multiple languages in the home where parents are like, well, they're not even picking up English. So, you know, we speak also Farsi, but we're not going to expose him to that we'll get into bilingualism later but same concept so yeah so the answer to that is no you want to make language fun and motivating And, you know, you gave the example of like mango. Well, what if mango is the motivating word for him? What if that's going to be the kicker for him? What if he's tired of hearing banana, you know, but he's not able to express that. So I always tell parents the targets that you should be focusing on are things in your everyday life that are natural, that are consistent, you know, that are regular um, and just expose them to their environment and what you're doing. And I think that's the best thing. Like if you're a family with, you know, two other brothers and they're a little bit older and they love superheroes talk about the superheroes it just has to be natural and fun
0: first myth is sign language so babies using sign language and I think one of the questions that we got on Instagram was how early can babies start using sign language, and will it um, hinder their speaking, like their vocabulary?
1: Totally, and that's a super common question again, and it's a great one. Couple things: there's obviously, you know, we have parents, caregivers, daycare providers who use actual signs of sign language, and then we have what we call sort of functional gestures, right? So gestures that you kind of invented because they seem natural. Like I don't know, I'll see some parents going like zoom with their. Arm and you know, the arm goes from right to left or left to right when they're throwing cars down a ramp or making them go. Um, that would be a functional gesture. It's not really a sign language per se, but your child understands and most people will understand what you mean when you're going like this with a car. So those things are totally fine. In fact, they're good. One thing that is super, super important and I don't want to forget to say is that when we're introducing signs or gestures or anything like that, I mean, and that's provided that there's no hearing issues, okay? We're talking about parents don't have hearing issues and child doesn't have hearing issues and that's a whole other topic. When we are supplementing with signs and gestures, we always want to combine it with the verbal model. So one of the things we often see in clinic is, you know, we'll have a kid who comes in and the daycare taught the child to go more with their hands, right? And I'm sure most people listening right now are probably nodding their heads and thinking like, yep, (laughs) they're doing more and they're doing more for everything because that's all they have. So that's fine, but you want to make sure that you are providing that specific model. Again, same thing if you're modeling a gesture or sign for please or thank you, that kind of thing. So signs and gestures have been shown to aid language development. They certainly do not hinder it. So there's no concern as as you're pairing it with verbal language, um, there's no concern in using them. My biggest thing is, and it's something that I typically will see again with those kids who do have language delays, is that they've got those handful of signs like please and thank you and more. And sometimes they'll have all done and then they kind of only use those and it's just not functional. So yes use signs but also do a lot of language stimulation a lot of commenting and a lot of varied functional vocabulary right because I mean your child can you know sign more all day long even if they don't want more you know sometimes I see kids who are using more to make a request well it would be more functional for them to point to the fridge or to the cabinet to make that request than to go more if they didn't already have any so those are just you know some things to keep in mind, but definitely does not hinder. You can start them early on. um, As soon as they have, you know, the motor skills to do it, it's certainly not a problem, but always pairing it with that verbal model and making sure that you're varying the vocabulary.
0: The next question was about multiple languages. So families that speak, let's say English and French or whatever it might be.
1: My favorite. <laughs> I love that question because it's everywhere in the community. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard a parent come in, well, you know, we speak you know two languages in the home and it's too much, or you know, my sister in law says it's because we speak two languages. No, 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 no. <laughs> We're gonna stop this right here. So if we are looking at a child who is exposed to for, for example, two languages in the home, or you know, one language at home and a different language at Childcare. care. I used to see that a lot when I lived in Ottawa. Um, and when I worked in Minneapolis as well, where the home language was different than the school language or or the daycare language, that's all fine. Kids have a really great ability to know who speaks what in what environment. And that's pretty spectacular actually. And they have that skill from the time that they're born. So my biggest thing when I have, you know, families who are bilingual or an environment that is bilingual is definitely to encourage it. Research has shown over and over again. And again, this is a pretty, pretty new topic, but it's a hot topic. Research has shown that older children who have more than one language tend to have actually better overall cognitive skills. So memory, processing, um, rate of processing, um, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, this is super encouraging and very positive in terms of bilingual families or families who have um more than one language in their their environment.
0: So sign language good, multiple languages good. Now what about speaking to your baby or your toddler in baby talk, kind of how you would speak to a dog. <laughs> you know, like the high pitched voice and yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's totally fine as well. So those changes in intonation and volume are completely natural when speaking with a baby. And so those have no impact. That being said, I'm going to make sure to clarify when we're talking about baby talk in this particular context, we're referring to what we would also call like motherese. Um, where, you know, it's really those, those changes in intonation and fluctuations in um, volume and that kind of stuff. Again, kind of like you described talking to a dog and using a bit shorter language. That being said, um, what we don't want is to start using fake words. So um, I'll give you an example. And one I see in clinic all the time is baba for bottle. That may be cute for a little while, but when that starts to persist and, you know, your child is not using the actual word bottle or, you know, CC for sit, like I see that one all the time, we want to make sure that we are using the correct vocabulary, the proper grammar, essentially. Well, crap. <laughs> what have you been doing? You <laughs> say
0: Bubba all the time. And the thing is, our dog's name is Bubbles. Yeah. So there's Bub for Bubbles, our dog. There's yeah. Bubbles for bubbles that float in the air. And then there's Bubba for the bottle. And then his soothers we call Wubba.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we hear I hear that all the time, too. Uh, You know, I mean, I just think that there's comes a point, your child is going to learn what's what they're exposed to. And, you know, there is a time in their life where that's not really much of a big deal. Um, But you know, if they're two years old going to daycare, and they're saying Bubba for bottle, how functional is that? Is he being understood? Is that being interpreted properly by the providers who are there? Um, Or if you drop them off at grandma and grandpa's house, Are they going to know, you know, what fake words that your child is using that you just taught him essentially. Right. So just something to keep in mind. It's kind of like, you know, how some kids will also use the baby talk themselves. Like they'll start kind of being whiny and stuff. I mean, it's cute for a little bit, but there comes a time where we need to get out of that. Again, it's, it's really keeping in mind that you want the language to be functional and you want your child to be able to communicate, not just with you.
0: So this question is super interesting. Children, who are making up their own words for certain objects and they're consistently using that word for that object even when they're being modeled the correct word?
1: So that is a super multi-layered question. And in all of the questions that came in, it, it's been worded and presented in different ways. So I will kind of go through different options. And if that applies to you, then you, know, you may get the appropriate answer or not. So some kids will babble or have what we call jargon. So it literally sounds like they are talking, but it's nonsensical. Like you have no idea what they're saying. Their intonation is on par. And there is an age where that is normal. That being said, once the child develops words, that starts to go away because they have the words to communicate properly. And definitely, you know, if you're thinking back on those milestones and you're thinking like, Like at a two years old, a child starts to combine, you know, at least two words together. You know, we want to see a a huge reduction in that jargon or that babbling around, you know, two uh, for sure. So um, that's one part of it. Kids sometimes will have speech sound errors. Most of the time, actually, will have speech sound errors. So when I'm talking about that is really you know, speech sound development will continue until kids are six to seven years old. So clarity of speech is very variable depending on the age of your child. So if your child is transforming sounds, that may be okay depending on the age that they are at. So they're going pish for fish, And there are two that would be considered normal and nothing to worry about. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing that we will look at when we're having either made up words or a lot of speech sound errors or just weird patterns in how clear a child 's sounds are and is we 'll look at hearing so super super important. I will often recommend a hearing assessment just to make sure that things are good when we identify that there is a delay. Obviously, kids with a history of a lot of ear infections, which is super common again in uh, toddlers, are at higher risk of having language delays simply because when those ears are filled with fluid, and i 'll specify whether they are infected or not because sometimes I'll ask like, has he had ear infections? No, but every time we go to the doctor, he has fluid in his ears. Okay, so when there's fluid in the ears, your child basically is hearing like they're underwater. And when you have kids who have a lot of ear infections or that every time you go to the doctor, the ears are full of fluid, it gives you a good indication that your child is probably spending a lot of time hearing like they're in a pool, which is not good speech input. And obviously, will have an impact on speech and language development. So that's something that we definitely want to recommend and look at and just get a hearing test just to be just to know. Um, So those are good things to look at. The other thing that we can sometimes look at, so um, some kids who have what we call oral motor disorders or motor planning difficulties, we tend to see a lot of jargony speech from them, a lot of made up words, a lot of like the same thing, same type of sounds or patterns for a variety of different things. Um, Those tend to be a little bit trickier to assess with a young child, but it's definitely doable and are treated a little bit differently than other speech sound um, disorders. So those are important that you have someone who um, really is, I don't want to say well-trained, but has good experience with motor planning as well, if that's the issue. And, you know, it's a really confusing thing and I'll, I'll break it down to the very bare minimum here. But basically when we're talking, our brain fires messages to our, to our muscles of our face and our lip and our tongue. And typically like that message is received and, you know, it, Your lips and tongue and teeth and jaw and cheeks will move the way they're supposed to move and so your speech comes out clear. Um, When we have a a lot of speech sound transformations, vowel transformations, or, you know, when we suspect those motor planning difficulties, basically the way that it happens is that the brain fires the message, but somewhere along the way the message is broken. So the child knows that they're trying to do a B, like a B sound, but they might get stuck on it or it might come out as something completely different. So- a little bit trickier, super complex topic, but definitely something to be looked into if, um, if that's a potential concern.
0: Okay. So we will finish on my favorite topic that I talked to you about, which is pacifiers.
1: Wait, wait, wait. We forgot something. Oh, we forgot yeah. that Instagram question that I got that I really don't want to forget. Um, the question was somewhere along the lines that a child has had speech therapy and they've now started to stutter. Okay. And it- Again, stuttering, we could do an entire podcast on stuttering. So this is a long talk. <laughs> but to kind of sum it up, sometimes some, we will see some disfluencies. So things that appear like stutters but may not be true stuttering in kids who are undergoing or who have undergone speech therapy. And sometimes it's not actual stuttering and sometimes doesn't need to be treated as actual stuttering. So super, super important to have someone who's able to um, make that difference. Is it actual stuttering or is it just stuttering or disfluencies, is something that looks like a stutter but isn't really stuttering um, simply because the cognitive load is super super high so your child's brain is developing um, they are undergoing a ton of changes and learning and all that kind of stuff and so their brains are already like at a pretty you know, maxed out potential here. And when we're adding in something like speech therapy, we're adding on to that, right? Um, So we have seen sometimes, and it's not that common, but it does happen, periods of stuttering light symptoms um, without it being necessarily actual stuttering. And typically, as soon as you, oftentimes we'll take a break or um, we will ease off on the pressure that we're doing with the speech therapy and the strategies. And then typically that you know, slows down and then we can start up again. So um, sometimes it's really just that cognitive load versus a true stuttering. And so it's super important to look at that.
0: Right, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And again, it's not a super common thing, but it is a bit of a risk, right? But it's like, you're not going to make your child stutter from going through speech therapy for sure. Right. Okay. Your favorite topic.
0: <laughs> my favorite. I don't know if it is my favorite or if it's my least favorite. I just find it so interesting. As most people probably know, my son Milo loves his pacifier, specifically the wubba nubs with the little animal on the end of it. The heavy stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> he, it's so funny because initially I was totally against. Soothers. When he was born, like we had soothers. I had bought some, but I was like, nope, he's not getting one. And then my husband, I kept catching my husband trying to give him a soother. And I was like, what are you doing? You
1: need to get pre in here. Yeah.
0: So I researched it and then I found all the research saying that, you know, soothers are good to sleep with because it reduces the, the risk of the sudden infant death syndrome. And I was like, oh my God, it's a good thing. So then we gave him the soother and he loves the soother. And right now we have limited it during the day. So he doesn't typically have it throughout the day um, unless he's really in a mood and he only gets it for a nap and nighttime when he goes to bed but I'm dreading getting rid of it but you gave me super interesting information about pacifiers and I thought she needs to talk about this because I've never heard this stuff before and it, I love it so
1: first another super loaded topic
0: yeah like this uh, it's true we should have an episode of just pacifier and soother talk but with regard to speech development so the reason i started limiting it during the day was after i talked with you about him improving his vocabulary and his speech i was like well he's not gonna model my words or talk during the day if he's always got this freaking soother in his mouth So it just kind of made sense for me to get rid of it during the day to work on his words. Then I found out all this other information and I'm like, oh my goodness. So let's talk about it. Okay.
1: So first things first, um, soothers are okay at a young age and they have been shown indeed to reduce the risk of SIDS. So sudden infant death syndrome, I believe, and don't quote me on this, but like under six months. And then that risk- Significantly decreases anyway. So there's that. Soothers also are good for a little bit of sucking practice, which can, you know, help with some swallowing and eating stuff. So that's good at a young age. No problem with that. Um, I think parents are probably more attached to soothers than the
0: kids are most of the time. Yeah, no, and... You're like gesturing, preach! (laughs) The thing is, when you have something that instantly fixes a problem... It's hard to get rid of that. Absolutely. So for sure, like if I want to drive to the mall and not have to deal with a tantrum or him whining the whole time and it's stressful because you're driving and, you know, you just want to be paying attention to driving, then I will give him the soother. And now that drive to the mall is perfectly fine. If I want to go for a walk, because I've been in the house for 93 days, uh, I'm gonna give him his suitor because it will let me go for an hour long walk. But like I was thinking about it today, at some point, we need to just suck it up and deal with the behaviors that may come and not just give them his soother.
1: Yeah. I think you're bringing up a good point too, right? So soothers, I mean, they wear their name well. Their goal, The goal is for them to soothe your child, right? They also need to learn other ways to soothe themselves. Okay. So obviously like that doesn't need to happen when they're little, little babies. Um, you can integrate other ways of, how babies can soothe soothe themselves. That is really hard to say. (laughs) Um, But you know, when we're looking at prolonged use, that's when we start to look at other things. Okay. So we look, we start looking at breathing patterns. We start looking at resting posture. We start to look at dental issues. And then we also start to look at feeding, swallowing, and speech. So the research on soothers, super, super murky. It's like a super controversial topic. Okay. And it's one of those things that's super heavily researched and we still don't have a clear line in the sand. So I tend to be a little bit, you know, conservative in my approach, but there's just a lot of things to keep in mind and to start to look at. I'll try and break it down the best I can and interrupt me if this is getting too deep. When I have a child who comes in with prolonged use of soother, so... Um, we're talking about well beyond 18 months here. Okay. Or even well beyond 12 months. We want to look at how is this child breathing? So typical breathing for humans is nasal. So we should be at rest having Closed teeth, closed lips, and breathing through our nose. Okay, that is natural breathing. A lot of children who have soothers for an extended amount of time, and I'm not talking about just at bedtime, like these are often kids that have it regularly throughout the day and at night. Typically, we'll start to see oral breathing. So, because that soother is always there, the children are not using their nose to breathe, but rather are breathing through their mouth. So, That's something that we want to look at. The other thing we want to look at is that tongue resting posture that we talked about earlier. So like I said, normal resting posture is closed teeth, closed lips, we're breathing through our nose, and typically your um, tongue is going to be uh, resting at the roof of your mouth. So that's just when you're not talking, not eating, that's normal resting posture. So again, because kids who have that extended soother use, typically what we start to see is that the resting posture, so even when the soother is out of their mouth, the teeth are open, the lips are slightly open and the tongue is low and forward, which means that oftentimes it's resting on those bottom teeth and sometimes it's like way out. That is not something that we want to see. Typically associated with excessive drooling just because everything, just the saliva just pools and then it drips, very poor motor control. Um, and obviously that can affect you know feeding as well. So I'll jump into feeding right away. Um, when we're looking at you know a child's feeding and some SLPs with pediatric experience do it and some don't look at it, I think it's interesting to look at, um, do they have a rotary chew? So really between 18 months and 24 months, that should be developing where kids go from you know, chewing with their mouth open and using their tongue to push the food back to suddenly chewing with a mouth closed and the tongue just doing its job. Of you know, pushing up to the palate and back to swallow, okay, as opposed to pushing out through the lip. Um, so that should be, you know, start to happen. And oftentimes what we do see with those kids who have prolonged extent or prolonged soother use uh and who have that open mouth resting posture, they're breathing through their mouths, they tend to continue to eat with their mouth open and have that infantile swallowing pattern where that tongue just pushes the food out and then back in. Um, So there's a lot of smacking (laughs) involved with the tongue, and you just are seeing the chomping happening. So that's something that we want to consider as well. What else? Speech. So when it comes to speech, again, research is super murky. What I don't like to see is, again, if the breathing pattern is off, and again, that's any other causes of why that that is happening okay so we're not talking about enlarged tonsils or enlarged adenoids or whatever we're saying that you know every all of that is clear we know for a fact we've checked that that is clear there's no nasal issues that's causing them to breathe through their mouth then what i get concerned about is when that tongue is resting on those bottom teeth essentially permanently. I kind of like to explain like our bodies are very smart. They're designed to function in the most efficient way possible, right? So if I'm producing a sound like an S, um, and if people can't hear that through the microphone, that's like S like snake. Um, We typically make that sound with our teeth mostly closed, like not clenched, but closed. And the tip of the tongue goes to the the top of the palate, the roof of the mouth, okay? With kids who have that tongue resting on their bottom teeth, they're definitely at higher risk um, just because that's where their tongue is to have, that li- to have that lisp, essentially. So the S would be produced, and other sounds too, but I'm just giving the example of the S, would be produced between the teeth, <sighs> as opposed to behind closed teeth on the roof of the mouth, right? So the tongue control is just not quite adequate, not because it cannot do it, but just simply because because of patterns that have been instilled for so many months, that's just kind of how it's learned to do movement, essentially. And then the last thing is dentition. So not all kids with extended use of soother have been shown to automatically have any issues, automatically have dental issues. However, there is definitely a risk. Um, We definitely see (laughs) soother mouths where the palate tends to be really narrow, again, because that tongue is not resting in the palate for it to expand, but rather it's hanging out on the bottom teeth. And the teeth are just Protruding outward. So, speech therapy has definitely been shown to help with those things um, before you even start to think about other dental treatments. Um, it's important to correct that, right? Like, I've seen, particularly when I was working in Minnesota, we were seeing a lot of those clients, and I was seeing like teenagers who had really bad lisps and bad oral breathing and all that kind of stuff. Stuff for different reasons, not just pacifier use. And I mean, some of them had gone through braces and orthodontics and whatever. If you don't correct what's causing your teeth to go wrong, like they're just going to keep, they're just going to keep being pushed back. Your tongue is a very, very strong muscle. It will push those teeth if it's not in the right spot. So super, super important to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. And I remember when we had our conversation, you telling me to like pay attention when Milo's eating, like, is he eating with his mouth closed? Also when he's sleeping, because he does go to bed with his soother, if I have to go in and wake him up, is it still in his mouth or is he just kind of falling asleep with it and then letting it go? Um, which I think is what he does because it's never in his mouth when I go in but yeah I have started to pay attention to his teeth and I'll probably send you a photo of (laughs) of his teeth (laughs) tomorrow it's also like you said you can't really make informed decisions when you don't know like I didn't know all this stuff about soothers but I never bothered to go Research it. It's not something that you just wake up and know one day.
1: Totally. And why would you, right? But my job is certainly to tell you what the risks are so that you can make that decision and you assume the risk.
0: The thing I found with the soother is I never really got clear information. It was like, well, you should get rid of it because, you know, his teeth are going to be messed up. And it's like, okay, like his teeth, like all kids' teeth are messed up. But when you started talking about like breathing and the palate, and chewing with your mouth open. And like I was just like, Oh my God, <laughs> that is the kind of information that I want to hear. Not just like, Oh, he's going to need braces. Well, okay. Like all kids get braces, you know? Totally. Yeah.
1: And I think, I hope, I know, I know you've understood that, but I hope that we're, I've been able to share how it's such a layered topic and how even research now isn't clear cut. Like it's not you do this, your child will have this, right? We just, there is a higher risk. And it's a question of whether you're willing to assume that risk or not.
0: So to end my show is what I call it. I wanted to know if there were any resources that you would recommend uh, to parents. Obviously
1: there are lots of great websites. Um, one that I really love eohu.ca slash talk i think i sent that one to you renee and they created these really cool short videos they're about 10 minutes for each age group and they go through milestones and strategies that would be appropriate so basically you click on your age group the age group of your child and then they'll you know have a list of milestones and then strategies to help them So that one is a great resource. So those are good. And from Hannon, there's It Takes Two to Talk website, um, not website, sorry, but book. So that's a great book to to address some strategies. It's also a great training. So if your preschool speech and language program, if your speech pathologist recommends it to you, it is a great, great program to go through with your your child. So those are kind of my go-to's. There are tons of others. Um, full disclosure, I am not paid <laughs> to recommend any of these right now. Um, they're just what I tend to gravitate towards.
0: And lastly, you just created an Instagram account. so I did. Yay. You bullied me into it. Yeah, your <laughs> pressure. So, pressure where can people find you and all of these things will be linked in the episode the episode outline so people can uh, find it all there but what is your instagram account
1: so my instagram my professional instagram account is alexandra jean j-e-a-n dot s-l-p and been getting so much questions and stuff. So that's been amazing. And hopefully it's helpful and it's filling a need that there may be in the community.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we'll definitely have more podcast episodes with speech related things because there's so much to talk about.
1: And again, like you are doing such a great job at promoting this. And I think it's great. It's making other families feeling like they're not alone.
0: Exactly. After speaking with you, that's one of the biggest things I thought, how many people would go on their platform and be like, oh, my son's behind in words, you know, it's not something that people want to talk about. And I had no issue going saying, oh, he's behind. I'm doing these things. Look how well it works. Everyone can make these simple changes yada 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 so yeah don't be don't feel bad about it basically
1: no and we're here to help if
0: needed right yeah all right well thank you so much i hope you guys enjoyed that episode please if you have a moment go to where you listen to your podcasts and rate and review again my name is renee Rena. you can follow me on tiktok and on instagram at the.mom.room My blog is ReneeRena.com. I post a new blog post every Sunday night, so look out for that. I'll have a new episode next week. It'll be a solo episode, and I really hope your children sleep tonight, guys.